the last time I addressed this group was in August of 2007, August 21st of 2007. Uh, that marked the beginning of a pretty tumultuous period in the financial services industry. Um, so what a difference 25 months make might be the theme for today's event. Today, uh, the two years since then, there have been repeated waves of uh, turmoil in financial markets, and there have been extraordinary actions by policymakers. And counterparties retreated from various market segments. Uh, various institutions faced financial distress. Governments and central banks around the world responded by providing unprecedented levels of credit and credit guarantees. The broad effect of all of that has been to shield many creditors from losses over the course of this uh, last two years. Now, in the, in the wake of this... Uh, crisis of 2007, 8, and 9, you might call it, uh, Congress is weighing proposals that would significantly restructure financial regulation in the United States. Central to the plans being discussed um, are stricter regulation for institutions and markets deemed to be systemically important, and a new governmental resolution authority for large, complex, non-bank financial institutions. Participants at region G20 meetings, for instance, endorsed the notion of increased capital requirements for such companies. <clears throat> given, the, given the broad and deep um, official support the financial sector has received, I think stiffer capital requirements uh, make a lot of sense. Um, and one would expect their effect to be to align banks' incentives better um, with uh, society's interests and taxpayers' interests more broadly. But I think it's also worth questioning uh, whether we need uh, to take the level of official support uh, for the financial sector that we've seen in this crisis, whether we need to take that level of support as given. In 1993, my predecessor as president of the Richmond Fed, Al Broadus, great guy, gave a speech entitled Choices in Banking Policy. And in that speech, he outlined the trade-offs uh, between reliance on market forces to align bank incentives and reliance on regulation, supervision, uh, to constrain and limit bank risk-taking. So I intend to take up that subject uh, again today, um, but to do so in light of recent events. As always, though, and this should be familiar to this audience, the views you're going to hear are going to be my own and not necessarily the official views of the Federal Reserve System. So Al Broadus's speech came just a few years after another major U.S. financial crisis um, in the late 80s and early 90s. And although the environment was obviously very different then, the trade-offs he identified are just as relevant today, I think, as we consider reforming our regulatory structure. And what it boils down to, the trade-offs he identified, are, is this. The more we rely on government guarantees of private sector financial liabilities as our main defense against financial market disruption, the more we must regulate private risk management in order to offset the adverse incentive effects of that financial safety net, we call it. But by the same token, meaningful market discipline requires a credible government commitment to not shield private counterparties of large financial intermediaries from 
credit losses. So the trade-off is between a broader safety net and relying more on regulation and more market discipline, which requires a smaller safety net. In this crisis, the official responses have expanded the scale and scope of the public sector support. Initially, it was in the form of Federal Reserve lending, then later in the form of capital assistance for financial firms from the U.S. Treasury, and um, then in the form of guarantees for newly issued debt by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. These responses were the result of well-meaning attempts to make sound choices in an ever-deteriorating sequence of situations that policymakers found themselves in. At each moment of crisis, it's hard to argue with the proposition that losses to creditors of a large, interconnected financial firm pose significant risks to the financial system and to the broader economy. Although I think it's, it's, it's worth debating, worth investigating whether those risks are so intolerable. But in any event, the cumulative effect of the actions that officials have taken over the last two years has been to solidify long-held beliefs by many market participants that large, interconnected financial firms will be viewed as policy, by policymakers as too big to fail, or uh, the way I'd put it is too big to fail in a way that imposes substantial losses on creditors. These beliefs have evolved over a number of decades through a series of actions that included the bailout of Continental Illinois National Bank and Trust in 1984, regulatory forbearance for banks that had become undercapitalized as a result of uh, losses related to debt of less developed countries, and this occurred in the 1980s. And I'd also cite the private sector rescue of long-term capital management, uh, rescue that was orchestrated by the New York Fed in 1998. And while that last action involves no outright public sector funding, it clearly signaled official concern for uh, the disruption that could uh, accompany an outright default. The result, I think, is the situation we're in now, an environment in which there is broad agreement on the need for stronger regulatory oversight of financial markets and institutions, but widespread dissatisfaction as well with the scale of the official financial support the crisis has seemed to require. So we face, I think, the same fundamental choice that my predecessor described 16 years ago, more regulation or more market discipline. In the face of this dilemma, a number of proposals for financial regulatory reform have emerged. The leading proposals before Congress uh, concentrate almost exclusively on expanding government protection and regulation. But I believe we would be better off by placing greater reliance on market-based incentives for prudential risk management. And that's what I'm going to be arguing today. So let's start off with what financial markets do. As you all know quite well in this audience, financial markets are fundamental to the way the economy allocates scarce resources to their most productive uses. Uh, the markets and institutions that make up our financial system collect the savings of households and businesses and reallocate those funds to other households and businesses as well as governments uh, who seek additional uh, f current consumption uh, and uh, investment that they'd like to finance. The possible uses of funds are many and diverse, and they vary both in expected outcome and in the associated risk. Another point this audience also well recognizes. Now, the, the conventional view of market mechanisms 
is that competition among alternative users of funds through prices offered and bid will tend to allocate those resources to their best uses, taking into account both the risk and the likely return um, on those uses of funds. In doing so, markets bring together the disparate knowledge of a diverse array of market participants, no one of which has a complete picture of the array available market uh, investment opportunities. And these two functions of financial markets, allocating resources and aggregating information, are clearly interdependent. After all, how do you distribute funds to their best uses without knowing something about the relative risks and rewards of various alternatives? Financial markets do not perform these tasks perfectly. There are limits to the information held by individual market participants and the extent to which they can exchange that in a truthful, honest, we call it incentive-compatible way. And in addition, the range of financial instruments and markets uh, that are available for trading, exchanging, channeling, uh, risk and rewards is incomplete. And that, that all means that markets may not achieve the same results that could be realized by a hypothetical omniscient central decision maker that economists like to, for analytical purposes, posit in their, their theoretical models of financial markets. Indeed, such informational limits um, appear to motivate many types of financial intermediaries and a host of other financial market uh, features and characteristics that are fairly striking. But these same imperfections mean that it's likely to be very hard to improve systematically on market outcomes because the same informational limits are likely to apply to a real-world policymaker as well, who, after all, lacks the theoretical omniscience of the economist's societal decision-maker. Government guarantees of private debt, either explicit or implicit, can have profound effects on debtors and creditors' incentives to appropriately price and manage risk exposure. These effects are likely to have been particularly acute for the large institutions that were at the heart of this crisis over the last two years and were viewed as too big to fail. Their creditors will see their own risks as at least partially reduced by explicit or implicit government guarantees and will therefore require less of a risk premium and impose fewer covenant restrictions than they otherwise would. Inexpensive debt financing will also encourage an institution to seek greater leverage than it otherwise would. And increased leverage, in turn, makes an institution less averse to large risks, other things held constant. Now, measuring the effects of this safety net on private sector uh, risk management is a terribly diff difficult prospect. But measuring the safety net itself is actually uh, quite possible. Research by Richmond Fed economists um, several years ago showed that in 1999, 27% of all the liabilities of firms in the U.S. financial sector, 27%, were explicitly guaranteed by the federal government. By their estimate, another 18% enjoyed at least some implicit support or were likely to be perceived by markets to have such support. So a total of 45% of financial sector liabilities had at least implicit government backing. This is in 1999. 
this was a conservative estimate of the implicit guarantees because it consisted basically of the government-sponsored enterprises, Fannie and Freddie, who you're familiar with, and the uninsured deposits of large banks. Of course, in the current crisis, explicit guarantee programs have grown. For example, we've expanded deposit insurance. And an estimate of the implicit safety net guarantee would also no doubt be larger today because we've seen protection extended temporarily to non-deposit creditors of banks, debt holders, for example, and to other financial institutions that weren't even in that, that estimate for 1999. So it seems likely that a substantially larger fraction of the financial sector is now operating under the effects of the safety net. The scale and scope of the financial safety net needs to be matched by the scale and scope of the regulatory and supervisory regime surrounding institutions. The central role of prudential regulation uh, today is to constrain and prevent excessive risk-taking that would otherwise be induced by the effects of the safety net. Capital regulations, for example, limit leverage, and supervisory oversight of financial institutions' risk management systems seeks to ensure that senior management and supervisors as well understand the risks that an institution is taking on. The dramatic recent expansion of support for uh, financial institutions and markets has enlarged the safety net, and so it's now well beyond the scope of the previous regulatory regime. So we have a mismatch now, a gap, if you will, between the scope of the safety net and the scope of our regulatory regime. And if no corrective action is taken to close that gap, the next economic expansion could well see more excessive risk-taking and could end up with more firms in financial distress. So the basic choice we face in restructuring financial regulation now is this. To what extent do we expand regulatory constraints to catch up with an expanded safety net? And to what extent do we limit the safety net and rely on market incentives? Based on the experience of the last several years, it may be tempting to conclude that a market-based approach has failed and needs to be replaced by tougher regulatory constraints. And this, after all, is the popular narrative, the one you see on cable TV, which portrays the financial crisis as the inevitable aftermath of an inherent tendency towards excessive risk-taking in unregulated financial markets. But I, I don't think that's right. We haven't tried unregulated financial markets. Market incentives have been seriously distorted for some time by beliefs about the financial safety net. In fact, my judgment is, my sense, is that the incentive effects of the financial safety net added to the vulnerability of financial institutions and contributed significantly to the housing boom and bust over the last decade. Perceptions that some financial institutions were too big to fail, including the housing-related government-sponsored enterprises, reduced their cost of debt and capital, as I said, and helped spur innovations in securitization and risk distribution, innovations that ultimately proved too much of a challenge for our regulatory apparatus. Those institutions enjoyed an artificial advantage in providing guarantees and providing backstop liquidity support through off-balance sheet entities, support which would prove most valuable during times of financial distress when ostensibly off-balance sheet assets would boomerang back onto bank balance sheets. And during the financial turbulence over the last two years since we last met, the 
prospect of official support blunted the incentives of many financial firms and their creditors to protect themselves against the possibility of a run or a panic withdrawal of funding support at those institutions uh, that might lead to a, a, a disruptive failure of those institutions. So they, they didn't have quite the incentive to protect themselves against a disorderly uh, or catastrophic failure. The extent to which decades of policy precedents have led to growing expectations of official support in instances of financial distress, to me, suggests a view of this financial crisis that's pretty different from the popular narrative. Successive crises over the last couple of decades elicited broadened support, um, but the case-by-case case evolution of how officials resolve things, over, especially over the last two years, made it hard to characterize just what limits there were, if any, on the prospect of safety net support to large financial firms. The resulting uncertainty can itself be a serious source of volatility when financial distress looms, because market participants are forced to speculate about the likelihood of rescue for a given counterparty they're dealing with. And that that uncertainty can also create further pressure to bail out a distressed firm. Because if we go into the distressed with uncertainty about whether they're going to get support or not, it can just draw policymakers towards providing support uh, in order to avoid disappointing expectations and the resulting sharp pullback of investors from other similarly situated firms. The result has been a, a growing expansion of the expectation of support, a dynamic that a former colleague of mine and I, Marvin Goodfriend, um, wrote about 10 years ago. So one key, I believe, to improving financial market performance is greater clarity about the safety net. We should seek to identify and articulate clear and credible limits to our willingness to shield private creditors from loss. This necessarily means taking steps to limit discretion in the midst of financial disturbances. To understand why, just put yourself in the position of a creditor of a large financial institution. You actually may be in that situation already. Um, and ask yourself the following question. If, in spite of this government's best regulatory efforts, the institution finds itself on the brink of financial crisis, threatening losses at an array of other institutions, how are authorities likely to respond? And if the answer involves expanded protection of the institution, then market discipline has been weakened. And if the nature of the authority's response, which liabilities they'll support, has not been made clear ahead of time, the financial market volatility is likely to be greater than it was before as well. This is a relevant question, I believe, because regulatory restraint on bank risk-taking can never be perfect. Regulators who, as I said, lack the omniscient of the economic theorist cannot prevent the failure of all large, complex financial institutions, nor should they attempt to do so. In the presence of a substantial safety net, competition will drive firms to seek innovative ways to take on leverage risk and to bypass regulatory constraints if they can get away with it. A market participant might then reasonably assume that regulators will successfully manage routine risks, commercial industrial lending, for example, while novel, non-routine risks that result from financial innovations are more likely to be difficult to manage and thus are more likely to be afforded special protection. And it's the non-routine 
financial innovation related risks that have been the source of past crises. It's always something new. It's always some activity that's just a few years old. And um, so it's always things like that, that that give rise to financial crises. The case for the discretionary use of public funds rests on a desire to head off costly effects that might result from a large firm's unassisted failure. And many have pointed to the market turmoil uh, that, the, that followed the Lehman Brothers failure almost exactly a year ago today um, as an example of such effects. But the general distress in the days and weeks that followed Lehman was a response to many, many things. The news of Lehman's failure alone, quite apart from how it was resolved by authorities, was clearly relevant to creditors of other financial institutions that had mortgage-related exposures. And that information was going to be revealed no matter how authorities handled Lehman, and and it was clearly relevant to other investors. And in fact, you would actually want it to be quickly absorbed in the prices of other financial assets for the financial system to work effectively. That's how it aggregates information. Another important component of the market response to Lehman was undoubtedly the unexpected nature of the government's treatment of Lehman. Given the actions that had come before it in the the period since the summer of 2007 and in the decades-long process uh, that brought us to too big to fail in associated policies. Market participants undoubtedly believed that there was a substantial probability that Lehman would be rescued if they failed. And when that didn't happen, they marked down their probability uh, that they attached to future rescues of other similar firms. And they no doubt further revised those probabilities both up and down uh, many times in response to the unfolding events in the days that followed. The argument for scaling back the safety net is not an argument for safety net uncertainty. Rather, it's an argument that we should both create expectations about the limits of assistance and take actions that validate those expectations. So for me, the real lesson of Lehman is that officials should make a clear commitment about what institutions they will not support. One focus in recent discussions of financial regulatory restructuring has been the process for resolving uh, the failure of large financial institutions, including firms without any bank charter. Lehman was an example of that. This focus is appropriate because beliefs about the safety net are really beliefs about what happens when a large firm uh, comes into financial distress. Now, one proposal is to develop a new, uh, establish a new federal resolution authority uh, to handle the failure of a large financial firm during times of stress. A failing financial firm could be taken into conservatorship or receivership, and the Treasury or some other federal agency would be able to provide loans, uh, guarantees, capital to the firm, or buy the assets of the firm. The intent is to provide for a less disruptive alternative to bankruptcy filing with the hope that such an authority can be credibly expected to impose appropriate losses on the firm's creditors. The description of this proposed resolution authority and many similar proposals that I've read about leaves it unclear to me, though, how it would establish such a credible commitment. And let me explain by These proposals involve two distinct features. One is to provide for an alternative to the bankruptcy laws uh, that govern resolution, that really constitute a resolution mechanism for large financial firms with many creditors. 
So I wouldn't be surprised if a close study of the bankruptcy code in the light of recent events reveals worthwhile improvement opportunities, and I'm all for that. But the proposed resolution authority would be distinct from established bankruptcy mechanisms. And in addition, it would have the discretion to use public funds to shield creditors from losses, a feature that I think would severely limit the benefits of such a resolution authority because if there were a widespread belief that public funds are going to be there to soften the blow to private creditors, it would weaken market discipline and further complicate the task of regulators, as I've outlined. Moreover, and this is the key part about a discretionary authority, uncertainty about whether such an authority will intervene to supersede the provisions of bankruptcy law, and uncertainty about which creditors will benefit from public funds, it's likely to intensify financial market turmoil just when, when, when you need it the least, right in the event in which stresses arise. So I think effective reform of resolution processes for large firms should limit the discretionary use of public funds. Now, Federal Reserve lending has played a prominent role in this crisis, and it's been expanded in, in the last two years far beyond the boundaries that were previously believed to constrain it. There's a, a section of the Federal Reserve Act, Section 13.3, that allows reserve banks, with the permission of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System in Washington, to lend to individuals, partnerships, or corporations, provided the circumstances are, quote, unusual and exigent, unquote, and provided the borrower is, quote, unable to secure adequate credit accommodations from other banking institutions, unquote. Now, that provision was very rarely invoked before 2008, but now it's been invoked uh, on a fairly large scale. And now that it has, I think we should seek to clarify how we want people to expect it to be used in the future. I personally would favor revisions uh, to uh, the Act, Section 13.3, that would specify more clearly the circumstances in which the Fed can extend such credit and the forms that such credit can take. For instance, I have suggested previously limiting the Fed's emergency lending um, under 13.3 to a duration of a few days, after which further funding would become the, the responsibility of the U.S. Treasury. But limiting discretion doesn't doesn't stop with the Fed. Decisions and actions of a separate resolution authority should be judged against a clear and simple benchmark for closing down firms and paying off creditors, a benchmark that involves a minimal use of public funds. And this might resemble the FDIC's so-called least cost resolution mandate, uh, where there were it's a provision of the FDIC Improvement Act. It's not always binding, but it provides a simple basic, basic option to compare any of their resolutions against and to hold them accountable uh, for resolving uh, failed banks in a way that minimizes the loss to the FDIC's deposit insurance fund. Now, I've, I've focused a bit more so far on uh, reforms related to the failure of the resolution process rather than on ongoing regulation supervision of financial firms or markets. And that's not out of complacency, I want to add, about our current regulatory uh, regime. I want to emphasize this. Federal Reserve staff have been devoting substantial time and effort uh, to implementing the improvements in our supervisory processes that we've identified through a very thorough review we've been conducting of lessons learned from this episode. Rather, um, the reason for my focus on failure resolution is that I think whatever we do to enhance prudential regulation, our efforts are going to be undercut 
if we don't also seek to rein in the incentives created by the expectations of limitless safety net protection and financial markets. And how well we curtail those expectations, I think, rests crucially on how clear we can be about what happens when a financial firm faces distress, because inevitably in a dynamic economy, some institutions will fail. Only by setting credible bounds on the safety net can we expect private sector incentives to align at all with the public interest we have in sound risk management. Now, I have to say that I recognize that a transition to a narrower safety net regime is likely to be quite difficult. By itself, merely announcing the intention to restrict support to a predetermined field of institutions and liabilities and allowing uncovered institutions to fail without insistence, it, uh, articulating that by itself is not likely to be credible. If actions speak louder than words, as they often do, Officials are going to have to demonstrate their commitment by allowing costly and painful losses to be imposed on creditors. Perhaps this is why there are those who seem resigned to an expansive safety net and are limiting their attention to providing additional tools so that policymakers can resolve a broader range of cases without resorting to bankruptcy. But my sense is that that path is likely to increase rather than decrease the likelihood of future financial market turbulence. The wider we cast the net, the greater the incentives of market participants to evade regulatory constraint while still availing themselves of the protection in situations of distress, leading to a continuing cycle, I fear, of crisis and bailout. And I have a hard time believing that we really need a publicly funded financial institution support system covering nearly half the liabilities of our credit markets. So I think that ultimately the benefits of a much more limited regime will come to be more widely appreciated. From that point of view, perhaps our choices in financial regulation, financial regulatory reform are really more about when than what. It's been a pleasure to be with you again today. Uh, thank you very much for your time and attention. has agreed to uh, take a few questions, so if uh, anyone has some questions, he has a few minutes to talk with us. Tim? It's a real good question. I've talked a lot about how the boundaries should be clear, um, and just where to draw the boundaries is an interesting question. Um, so the regime we came from uh, had the safety net associated with um, depository institution charters, banks. So if you had a bank charter, or you know, if you're if the holding company owned a bank charter. Um, then the presumption is that through the bank charter, you'd be able to avail yourself of deposit insurance protection and access to central bank lending. And um, 
I think it's an open question as to whether we need to extend it beyond that or not. And I, I would think that the leading candidate for a, a way to draw the boundary is based on charter type, and banking seems like the natural dividing line, the dividing line between banking and, and non-banking uh, activities. Um, I, what, I, what I think could be problematic is um, defining the scope of the safety net via the, the choices and selections um, made in a discretionary basis. That is to say, you set up somebody, some authority and say, whoever they designate is systemically important gains membership in the safety net, gains coverage in the safety net. I think that's likely to lead to more uncertainty and more problems down the road. So um, I think it, it ought to be charter-based. I think that's the natural way to do it. So the question is, um, uh, questioner noted that mortgages were uh, at the heart of the financial crisis and went on to uh, ask uh, whether there's any hope of uh, more mortgage financing shifting back to the private sector. So that depends on choices Congress and the administration make regarding the, a new regime for Fannie and Freddie, and clearly a new regime is, is in order. Um, and um, the extent to which Congress and the administration, um, uh, you know, deem it as socially worthwhile to uh, continue uh, to encourage home ownership and subsidize housing finance in the way we have in the past. Um, you know, efforts like that reach diminishing returns. I would think that on reflection, we'd think that we maybe got home ownership up to about as high as we could reasonably expect it to safely get in the last decade, at some point in the last decade, and maybe perhaps went beyond that. So I would hope some reflection on the need for government involvement in housing finance would be forthcoming in the coming uh, months in dealing with that. Um, but um, the real answer to your question would require me to um, uh, make a political forecast and uh, that's something I generally avoid. So I'll dodge the rest of the question. Other questions? Okay, well, thank you very much again. It's been great to be here. Really appreciate it.